Hello and welcome to Apocalypse Bunker Discs. Well, let's face it, in the age of melting ice sheets, the 21st century castaway is far more likely to find themselves marooned down in an apocalypse bunker than on an idyllic desert island. Each instalment, I invite a new lockaway to make a selection of music they would download with their severe Wi-Fi rationing. Additionally, a film, ebook, and artwork to see them through the isolated days. I, Oliver Turtle, am working as a cultural liaison for the Post-Disaster Council. Hello. Hello, Charlotte. It's Oliver here, calling from Control. I just wanted to go through your selections with you to record for the Apocalypse Bunker Discs subcast. Does that sound agreeable to you? It sounds good. I'm hopeful that I've got enough. I have to say, you have been uh, pushing it a bit with the duration of your pieces, (laughs) but that's okay. Some people, when they've designed their bunkers, they've tended to go for the more traditional concrete stock with the mid-century modern furniture. But yours is almost a very um, outside, earthy bunker, mud and clay and grass. Yeah, a few scratches on the walls. Mm, Scratching down the days. Looking through your documents here, I just have to make sure this is correct, process your downloads. So uh, Charlotte Wendy Law, and under occupation we have artist and sensory researcher playing with the material world. So, so you're particularly interested in sort of acts of decreation. Yes. So is um, this subversive? No, it's more no. about finding out the workings to reimagine, to push the potential of an object into a new space. And that can be, say, with the piano. It was a way of creating a new language to take apart this abandoned piano, break it down, and then reform it. So you're referring now to your piece Ode Action, which you performed with the saxophonist Arta Vidal. Yes, we did that for a good few years, sort of travelling around with these fragments of the piano and his saxophone and building each time like a new, very precarious but very beautiful landscapes, sonic and visual. So was it the same piano which you were assembling and then decreating each time? Exactly. And then we called the ones that followed that Action Ode. And we began channeling the spirit of Elaine Smith, who was a mystic and would travel to Mars and places like that and come back speaking their language. She was working in France at the turn of the century and she was a bit of a darling of the scene. I thought she's someone we could find useful today, actually. We're having a bit of a PR crisis with Mars at the moment. Oh, really? So we could um, do with her insights. What I found very interesting about her is that she was a really radical feminist, in my view, because she was breaking language and remaking language, travelling coming back with these stories, these words, Mm. these images. But then the linguists of the time were translating her. So every time that she broke it, she was sort of being pulled back into this realm of the known. She played with it. It was her 
it was her game as well. They were all playing a game. And so for me, I was constantly searching out new forms that this piano could take, not just a visual space that was in motion, but also because it's a resonant object, the wood and everything, all the sounds were very present. And I would use solidified oxygen in the form of balloons that were filled with expanding foam. So when that expanded foam then formed a hardness, found its shape, the balloon would sink back in on itself and they actually became almost like mini, very brightly coloured asteroids or something. first choice, Agathe Marx, with her yeah. Rêve Perdue, she made this piece in response to the film by Werner Herzog called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Yes. And this is one of the earliest examples of a human art or painting in these caves in uh, France, in Chauvet. And um, she was actually working on an exhibit which was replicating some of these designs within the cave yeah. for a building nearby. I, mean, I was very lucky. I met Agat when we did a performance together, stayed in contact, and when she launched that piece and the servants jazz quarters and very nice little venue in Dawson she asked me to support her and open the night mm. and so I did my piece and I was very well received and it was a great thing and then she did that album and it just blew me away it was so beautiful I just felt like really honored and really overwhelmed project. She spent about two years making these sort of bear skeletons for this exhibit and uh, the cassette tape for this album it comes in two colors because it's a cassette release bone white or bear brown. One of the tracks is actually called Rev Perdue. I think this is the one where you can definitely hear the sounds of the cave chiseling sounds because right. I suppose the challenge is to capture these beginnings of human inspiration and art making yes, in this and project. Yes, well, you can imagine 
or when we are now returning to this space of being down here. It's like a way to communicate beyond the human that's present into a human beyond time, an archetype or to your ancestors and your future and when everything's become collapsed and contained. Her music she uses concretions which are these solidified masses which she found within the caves right. they look very strange sometimes they're known as dinosaur eggs quite often misinterpreted as these extraterrestrial objects they kind of harden yeah. around sometimes fossils or other matter so she uses them as instruments that's great. I love them. I want one. I'm going to find one down here and make music with it. You're starting <laughs> your selections with the kind of very start of human creation in a way, which will give you um, a certain amount of perspective. And maybe we're reaching an uncertain point in humanity's timeline. I suppose it's good to kind of feel the kind of weight of creation behind you. Yeah, these elemental feelings of what it is to be human. And that you're going to have to stay there for a while being human. Mm. You've got to stay with it. Yes, you are in a cave of sorts <laughs> being down there. I mean, do you think that you will be partaking in um, some mural drawings in the side of your bunker? Yeah, I feel like I'm, yeah, some scratching. I've been doing some twig placement, which has been quite pleasing. Ah, okay. That's the way we always encourage this kind of behaviour. <laughs> yes, I mean, you wonder whether the inhabitants of the, the Chauvet Caves, maybe they felt that they had a similar situation that they were they hiding from. They had to go there. They had to go yes. There. They're pretty haunted by animals rather than um, themselves, which perhaps we have done in this situation. Is that how you are now understanding these raging atomic storms is that actually it's just a manifestation of humanity's desire to cannibalize itself. I'm not really um, at liberty to divulge that particular <laughs> information, but needless to say, there are certain reviews which will be published in due course okay. on the, uh, the responsibility of the apocalypse. Okay. But, um, <laughs> it's, it's pending at the moment. Okay. We're thinking of blaming another planet, but... Um, <laughs> Going back to um, Agathe, I have a quote from her here. So she says, The album was built around the idea of dreamlike landscapes and different notions of time, like a journey in space and time through the medium of dreams. Those drawings in the cave, you know, they are, in a way, the dreams of those people and the imaginings, which I guess they're a link to us now, even yeah. these thousands of years before. It's the same language which we can relate to. Yeah, a telling that goes across all time, telling that story. Dreaming. 
think she held a hundred people in her heart in that performance when I saw her. And she had a great Bhutto dancer join her at the very beginning as well, which was very minimal, mm. but very, very beautiful. So Bhutto dancing is a freeform style that emerged in post-war Japan, Bhutto meaning dance of darkness. And with these paintings, I think there's some speculation that they were used in rituals and perhaps were the backdrops to dance as well. Imagine a fire in there and then you already have motion, the light like flickering across the walls. That mm. image is suddenly animated. I mean, it's like immersive theatre, right? Yes, maybe they had multimedia performances, which now are seen as being quite boundary-breaking. Yeah. I guess you you have had some experience in this particular situation before. Um, when in Iceland, you were um, experimenting with isolation. Yeah. And during one piece, you described Iceland, for you, it became the, uh, the living dead love child of John Carpenter and Sappho, Bardot and Monroe. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you've had any such realizations in the bunker so far. Has it been um, personifying for you in any way? At the moment, she's a darkness opening. Okay, so you're not quite embodying the bunker yet. Not quite embodying, and maybe she's questioning. Maybe she's questioning. I think I've had some whispering voices around me that are questioning of say animal vegetable mineral or who what where like what am i who am i where am i when you want to know like you're just trying to center and find out you know just the basic stuff i feel like instead this bunk is kind of asking me things like word am i wind am i like it could be anything it's just beyond and it, perhaps it will snake its way back I feel like I'm going through or like human shedding its skin down here. You feel like there's a, a transformation still occurring within you and maybe yeah. without you from yeah. the uh, your above ground identity and your bunker identity. There's this process which you're going through and you feel yeah. like you're, the environment's a part of that. Yeah, perhaps there's emerging emerging mm. rather than emerging. I do like doing these um, consultations with the other lockaways. Um, some of them have been merging a bit too much with their environments, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> but um, I just I would you know, advise against that, really. But um, it's good that you're getting to know the space.
remember one time I had a very lucky taxi journey. I don't take taxis very often, but um, I had to move 64 bricks across London to do a performance. And the guy was really nice. I was going to cycle after him. And he was like, no, you can hop in. And we had this really amazing talk all the way across London. And we were talking about the birds and he was telling me about his garden, la, la, la. And all of a sudden I told him that I was from Dartmoor. And he turned Mm -hmm. around and he looked at me and he said, I've never told anyone this, but I was inside. And I was like, oh, my God, no. Like, maybe I know you. Because I used to, like, shout at the prisoners, you know, from the the wall. We know maybe we've had a chat. We could have had a chat. I was like, when were you in there? I was really excited. And he yeah. was like, oh, 78. And I was like, oh, okay, I wasn't born then. And then mm-hmm. he told me all this stuff about what was happening in the prison while he was there. Basically said, like, I was an angry young man. I did my time mm-hmm. and no one knows. Like, my wife now, she doesn't know, and da-da-da. And I never did anything since then. But he said that there, he was part of a coven in Dartmoor Prison. The leader of the coven was this six-foot-six metalhead called Finn. So he was like, oh, my God. Love the sound of this, like this coven in Dartmoor Prison. They were also vegans because it was a way to get some control over the guards to say, No, this is what I'm eating. Like, you have to feed me this. I'm not going to eat that. I'm a vegan. So it was a way to have power. He was often in solitary confinement. I mean, it's quite a scary place. And I, I have also been inside as a child one time when we didn't have a car and I had hurt my arm and they thought I might have broken my arm so my dad took me to the prison to see the doctor there and it was really weird it was like being underwater I think because the sound you know it's so echoey and strange and the colours were so weird he told me that in solitary confinement the whole room is painted black so you're in complete darkness apart from like a white line on the floor and if you touch Mm. the white line all of a sudden you are beaten it's so frightening the IRA were there a lot and There was often a lot of escapees as well across the moors. We had this crazy, amazing journey together. Mm. He told me all this amazing stuff. And then at the end, we had this beautiful hug. It was so lovely. Something struck with me about them being in the prison. Like, I guess the bunker could be a bit of a prison. Mm. How you maybe need ways to... and, And to see that people, that's how people have always done it. Like, they'd taken the gods that were there before and maybe taken a few different ones and made new ones for themselves to fit the needs of the moment.
up your second piece. You have Eliane Radique and her mm. triptyque. Yeah. From 1978. Yes. Which was when my prisoner was in prison. Yes, and Eliane Radique, she almost willfully went into solitary confinement. She's very much seen as being a lone pioneering figure. And the album cover for Triptyque is, is very haunting. It kind of shows her standing at the back of an empty auditorium, staring into the camera lens. I found there's a great write-up on her in The Guardian about 10 years ago by Pascal Wise, mm-hmm. who um, describes her music as being characterized by this idea of, kind of tectonic plates of sound, slowly transforming. She started out within the music concrete movement in France in the 1950s and um, she was moving away from their cut-up and um, collage ideas, getting more interested in feedback and noise and she moved to New York to work with Martin Sobotnik and Dori Spiegel to get into synthesized music. To begin with, when she was encountered with the synthesizer, she actually baffled at it and she had all of these, she described them as big effects which she had no use for so she decreated if you like these synthesizers she was presented with so she would take components away from it until she was only left with the parts that she liked herself and when she went back to france she left the keyboard part of it at home and uh, there's a quote from her saying that i could change the sound from the inside to explain it visually you could imagine a mountain turning into a cup, but slowly from one state to another. It takes time by nature. It takes a long time for a mountain mm. to turn into a cup, right? Well, there are strange things happening above ground at the moment, but um, <laughs> we'll have to say it is. Yeah, it does take quite a while. <laughs> well, I love that though, because also with her leaving the keyboard, that's so very zen. You mm. just have that feeling with zen where it's like, once a year, you should go through your things and be like, if you've not used it or touched it or needed it, maybe it needs to go somewhere else, right? If it's not something that has a use for you, maybe you don't need to carry it. And I love the fact that it's this Teutonic plane. So actually, 10 years ago, if that was when the review was written, it's probably about the time when I saw her pieces performed live for the first time under the Louvre mm-hmm. in France, in Paris you were a witness to it it was serious but you physically participated in it as well and were somehow subtly changed by it so the fact that she's with me changing this mountain into a cup i'm really happy just on your person I imagine that these vibrations were Absolutely. passing Absolutely. through you. Absolutely. 
like an animist kind of thing. Those vibrations mm. were passing through everything in the room, mm -hmm. in the space, the chairs, the carpet, the walls, the other people, the other people's handbag, anything. And somehow it must have been affecting all of us and everything in there because mm. it was just so profoundly dense moving like this dense wave pushing through mm. I like this idea of the transcendent handbag <laughs> <That's>, um, <laughs> some handbags do need to transcend <laughs> Although, of course, she's using electronic sounds. There's something, as you say, very elemental about the music and these wave sounds. And yet she pushes them away from that again. So starting with something that's quite familiar or a representation of that. And then she will play with these frequencies, spanning them into something which is quite alien. Endless picture book there. She's like a cloud, can see anything there. Should be a good accompaniment to the National Geographic um, <laughs> album. And um, there's this great anecdote. I think she was teaching. Some students from France came over, and uh, some of them suggested that she seemed to have something in common with Tibetan Buddhism. And she looked into it and promptly converted. <laughs> Apparently, you know, the eureka moment. She went away for a few years to study under a, uh, a guru. Yeah. And she came back and she created this piece along with yeah. a few others as well. So this triptych is one of the pieces oh, she made returning gorgeous. from yeah. that experience. So she very yeah. much had you know, these rituals in mind. Yeah, the meditation and the practice. It's weird, isn't it? It's because it's dense, but it's like there's the quietude and there's the joy and there's the, the shifts, the subtleties. And that's so great <laughs> that she just converted on the spot after like, oh, that is the thing. I know what she means. I know. I feel her. There was a, a composer who was working with her and um, they asked her to um, sort of conjure a sound representing the silence of the stars. And apparently she went over to her synthesizer, changed some parameters without even looking at it, and then walked off and said, there you go. And, and lo and behold, she had something which was very much in line with that idea.
period when you saw her, this is when she wasn't uh, using the synthesizer, right? No. She was, um, yes, with collaborators. So for a long time, she says she had a very kind of lonely experience with composing. She said, my, my only collaborator was my cat. She was very uneasy about embracing these people who wanted to work with her. The bass player she worked with originally, he came over to perform with her. She was watching to see how the cat would react and apparently <laughs> was very peaceful and sedate with this collaborator. So she felt like it was a good direction that she was going yeah. in. So yes, she kind of moved away from this quite personal, zen-like approach which she started with. Mao's a great collaborator of mine. We're often mm. collaborating. So, so Mao is your, um, your canine companion. He's quite good at becoming shamanic down here. He digs in the dirt, has a dust bath turns himself completely from a golden hound into a grey, dusty hound and then runs off to bark at shadows and works some magic. Your next selection is Meredith Monk, maybe one of the singers who really expanded yeah. what singing means and the idea of the voice as instrument. So, yeah. so the, the piece you've chosen is Dolman Music, 1981, the one she's most well known yeah. for. Quite often in that piece, she does sound like she's using dog-like noises or all different kinds of animals, actually. As a disclosure, I've seen all the people that are here with me. Meredith I saw at Cecil Sharp House. She's such a great teacher. If you've just got your voice, how to play. She's so playful. She stood on that stage and she's in her 70s or more. And she had this joyful aliveness of like a seven-year-old or something. It was just amazing. And she just had that crazy range. It's like she'd never even thought about fear, like fear wouldn't come into her clear mind. She could just go wherever she wanted. I thought that would be a wonderful way to be down here, to use the voice and to have the voice as, as a way of journeying. Come on, Ma, are you having a little crumble? You are. <laughs> Na 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 na
And also, I suppose being isolated quite a lot, it changes what language means yeah, to exactly. you. Yeah, exactly. She's very much someone who turned away from the idea of language. She found it was actually something which gets in the way of music, and yeah. she said it filtered the music or complicated it. And she felt like by having these sounds, which just sort of emanated. Made them a bit more direct to what she was trying to express, and、yeah. also she says that she starts off with quite technical things with her voice, and then she interprets the things she's doing, and then she starts to understand them and shapes them into these narratives. They're not pinned down. It's like when you walk through a wood at certain points, or any kind of space, and you're aware of the sounds. The car isn't aware of the. Person walking the dog or the bird singing, but it's all happening, and sometimes it becomes so melodious. So she has managed to create that real naturalness. With all these different characters, the objects or different machines and things which she kind of channels, it's almost like、yeah. a symphony of the world that she is sewing together with her voice. This big patchwork of the world. I mean, just the title of this album, Dolmen Music, a bit like the concretions we were mentioning earlier.、Um, basically, three rocks rested、yes. in such a way that you've got two walls and a roof, and they're these tombs. Which you find all over the world. They have loads in Cornwall,、um, across Germany, France, Sicily, and there are some in、um, Korea and、uh, Quebec as well. On the last trip that I made before coming to the bunker, I was there with Mao, and there's this place, the Long Barrow, near Stonehenge, which was an ancient burial site. It's not a dolmen, but there are dolmens around, and I was in there and was doing a sonic meditation, and Mao. Just stayed outside and barked at me until I came out. <laughs> He knew. Oh, I see. There was something spooking Mao. He knew it wasn't really a place to go in and sonic meditate. Ah,、oh, I see. Much better to be outside. <laughs> ah, okay. He was.、Um, he felt there was something sacred about the、yeah. tomb itself. So I suppose Meredith Monk, by titling this album as that, she's trying to go back to early. Pure human idea of the voice and expression. Because they do also think that there was communication at that point in time,、mm. even if on a different level. There's a thought that perhaps music predates language,、yeah. like whistling languages and things like this, and different intonations. Yeah, and I've woken up before with the dawn chorus and thought, I wonder if the birds are telling each other their dreams. I still tend to think that. They're arguing with each other violently about、um, <laughs> if you were to translate it, it would be a cacophony of expletives and、uh, footnotes. <laughs> No, no, no.
So your next choice is uh, Laurie Anderson's Walk the Dog. Yes. <laughs> Very appropriate as Mao is now requesting his evening repast. He has chicken. Chicken. The whole kind of farming bunkers which we have set up. I don't want to know what you're creating me. Well, it is free range in a way. We do try to keep... <laughs> but petri it is dish. not petri dish. You know, we have <laughs> certain regulations. But that obviously is not ideal. Good point. I don't know if you've investigated the, the breadth of the apparatus in your bunker, but um, we do have these plant-growing boxes. There are different presets you can use to grow different vegetables. And oh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in that. I'd love to get some plants down here. Mm, so I guess mushrooms would grow really well down here in the dark. Microgreens, mm. rainbow chard. Mm. Um, so with your next choice... Um, Again, we have this sort of channeling idea, but in a very much yeah, I mean, more kind yeah, of playful. She is playful, but she's she's playful, but she's also highly intelligent and political, and you know, using her voice in very new ways at the time, wasn't she? Really enjoying herself. piece because it was originally it's the b-side to oh superman so it's not from the big science okay. album but from the same time and um my first experience i thought that maybe she's singing as though she was the dog it's kind of they, every day but very weird right i mean that album she produced for a kind of artwork kind of american series where she was trying to encapsulate modern american life in all these Soundscape. I remember so. it the first time around and it just sort of blew my little mind in a way. But just uh, sonically, the production on it is quite stunning. The way that she's using the vocoder on her voice with these yeah. kind of sweeping chords that come in. Yeah. Does Mao like 
have you tried um, playing him <laughs> walk the dog? No, but I mean, also I think like walking with or without a dog, but with a dog is something so nourishing. Like, because you really do go to lots of places. I mean, you're you're kind of committed to spending an awful lot more time outdoors. Mm. You know, in motion and exploring does make you think about things. I mean, the way of wa- walking anyway you do think differently when you're walking. Walking can be a form of meditation, so you can let your mind, your mind will go to many places that you wouldn't have the time or space. It's a different way, and it's a very, also kind of, it has its own political nature on, on, on many levels, I guess, like the sort of like agency to like walk and to think and to like have that, you know, to give yourself that space of time and let your mind wander. song by Dolly Parton. And she was singing. Wow! I feel so bad. I feel so sad. I left my mom and I left my dad. And I just want to go home now. I just want to go back to my Tennessee mountain home now. Well, you know she's not going to go back home. And I know she's not going to go back home. And she knows she's never going to go back gonna go and walk her dog before the bunker you were living on um, a houseboat for a while yeah uh, you were saying it's, it's almost like a lily pad You're kind yeah, of like this, we uh, have floating roots mm-hmm. we have a thing at the beginning you have to tick a, f- a box whether you have a mooring and if you don't have a mooring you have to tick a box saying that you are a continuous cruiser and I think that's been the best tick box that I've ever really ticked I'm like wow I just cruise around continuously mm. awesome <laughs> this particular scenario with the bunker is of course it's static that's why I think I need so much mind travel <laughs> well you do have this this more verdant setup quite a spacious bunker that you have as well it's almost like a Thanks. like a garden in a thank way. you mm. it has, yeah we're, we're making it so Yes, no, I know that the uh, the design department, they were very excited about your um, the plans you had. <laughs> well, they've done a good job, they've mm. done a good job. And also you were very hardworking, in, as it says in the notes here, that you, you were insisted on doing a lot of the work yourself. That's the kind of... Um, <laughs> that's true. That's, that's well, partly I mean, why we yeah. you know, were letting you have the longer choices. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't want to have a too Habitat or a Ikea aesthetic down here, I guess. You know, or home base, God forbid. Well, home base aren't, you know, they're not with us anymore, but IKEA <laughs> are still going somehow. In fact, they've gone... Yeah, I'm not saying anything bad about them. No. Well, you know, since they went into Galactic, there's no stopping them, really. I love their bags. 
Well, now they're you know they're mincing around in Andromeda with those. So. <laughs> yes, they're they're really colonizing space, Ikea. Terrific music. Uh huh. Your next selection is a um, short piece, which has a weight to it.、Uh, Daniel Johnston and his "True Love Will Find You" in the end. Yeah. Daniel Johnston, well known for producing、um, sort of DIY cassette tapes、yeah. of his music, guitar and voice usually.、Yeah. He was working in a McDonald's in、yeah. Austin, Texas, and he would pass them out. And this is from the seventh cassette, which was called "The Retired Boxer." I love this song. I love this song. I mean, I feel like this song makes me feel like so hopeful, and it could make me cry probably every time I listen to it. A real special guy. You know, he he had a life of this one love. He loved this one person his whole life, I think, and he just and it was always like this, you know, from afar, this unrequited love. It's a real love song. You know, that's a really, really real love song. I feel. Sounds like a, a traditional song, as though it's always existed. Yeah. There's something so concentrated and pure. It's like a child that knew really what it meant to have your heart. Like his voice is so pure, but really you know that that heart has been broken, but it still believes、mm. in love. The music and the melody itself is so、um, so entwined with the words, and it、yeah. seems like they could never be sung in a different way. Yeah. So.、Um, Inseparable about the two. Yeah, it became, it became. It's an entity. It exists and it's wonderful. Chills. I get chills from that song.、Uh, the subjects of his songs. He was like very open about how there was this one person that he was enraptured by, and、yeah. how all of his music was like a an offering. Yeah. To this person, the naughty word, but it's very authentic. Yeah. It feels like the art is life, and vice versa. I feel like if you didn't know his backstory, it would still be incredible music, and you wouldn't necessarily suspect the backstory.、No. I think either the film *The Devil and Daniel yeah. Johnston*, yeah. which talks about、um, problems he had with schizophrenia、yeah. and quite a lot of extreme episodes in his life.、Yeah. Like、there's an incident where he was in a plane with his father, oh, yes. and、um, he takes. The controls away from his father in a kind of they crash it. He crashes、um, the plane, right? Yes.、Yeah, so he has sort of lives in a very restricted manner for most of his life, and yet he does produce this music as well. He gets labelled as a sort of like naive、yeah. artist and outsider. I think naive is the wrong word for、mm. him. I, th- I think he's much more than that. Some of these boxes are a bit too small. That documentary, The Devil and Daniel Johnston.、Yeah. Although it was really good for bringing his music to a wider audience,、yeah. it did also kind of perpetuate that myth. As all good beings that inhabit myths are, 
they are um, intriguing for their multiple lives that they get to live out, right? Zeus doesn't do just one thing. He's got all these different crazy stories that he's involved with, and sometimes he's, like, benevolent, and, you know, it's just like, these gods and goddesses are a pretty wild, um, unruly bunch. Don't be sad. interesting that with um, Agathe Max, her release was on cassette. Daniel Johnston as well yeah. is known for the, these cassettes yeah. too. I'm actually putting out a cassette too um, soon, which is nice. You can be your own master, right, with the tape. I always remember my first little radio, which had the little tape thing and you could record on it and you had all the buttons. You could do all sorts of things and everyone recorded the radio, right? With Daniel Johnston, you know, when he was giving out the tapes... They were just easy little boxes to kind of pass around. Yeah. Cigarette box shaped. There was almost something quite appropriate about this idea of peddling them, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Just kind of the shape of them. Yeah. Whereas, of course, CDs, you can't really fit them in your pocket. They're, they're, they're kind of a different um, character to them. Yeah. This kind of fragility, which a tape doesn't really have. I mean, obviously, tapes don't last forever, but like a CD was, oh, that was the one thing, you know, they just got messed up really easy right if they scratch then that's it yeah whereas with a tape if it gets mangled you can kind of reset it i just remembered all of his drawings as well uh, i mean the cover for this one the retired boxer of course like a david trigley right it's, yeah it's a retired boxer with like an aspidistra i think right. behind him. i mean he had characters and super characters and i mean i guess he was also yeah manifesting his like world right yeah, when did you first hear um, uh, Daniel Johnston? Like, I think Kurt Cobain was a big fan, right? So I think he probably came to mm. me through that way. And I always really loved that one that was like, um, running water, running water, running water, where are you running from? Running water, where are you running from? You always seem to be on the run. And you never change, no matter what you do, you always wind up the same. Never knowing where you go, always running, never stopping to see where you're at, never looking back, nothing seems to slow you down. Yeah, some of them are very witty, kind yeah. of playful ink pieces. Yeah. Like they could be written by Yoko Ono yeah. someone else who has a very um, huge mythology around them is your, your next choice um, Sun Ra oh yes oh. I never saw actually Sun Ra but I saw Sun Ra's orchestra right and I thought well that's fair enough and this one I don't know there's something about this song that I love I love how deep his voice is I'm just like what is this China Gate and like you can kind of see it somewhere up there in the cosmos right i mean he was definitely um traveling around in space as well this is one of my favorite songs to sing as i cycle i love it i love it i love it i was i was listening to it cycling in the velodrome yesterday <laughs> were you you cycled in the velodrome 
Well, there's nowhere else to cycle. Really. Right, okay. Then in the complex we have a <laughs> Of course. central myth or perhaps reality that he had this relationship with beings from Saturn and he had this mission from Saturn to spread this music and he had this kind of orchestra if you like yeah. of musicians yeah and uh, this song China Gate is from futuristic sounds of Sun Ra yeah 1961 where he had sort of a smaller group of musicians it's so dreamy I mean to me the kind of arpeggios that you have these very sort of twinkling sounds <sighs> They almost sound like curtains or like the <laughs> these gates kind of shimmering and opening. Yes, okay, they, so like a, a kind sings. of like twinkling, mm. like a crystal curtain twinkling away. Curtain of stars, ooh. I suppose there's there's a slight oriental as the other, you know, the exotic, with a bit of a dated idea, but still this paradise that you're travelling to is still quite an appealing idea, especially in confined space. Yeah. This is the song on the album which was written by someone else. Oh, really? Wow. So it's a cover of Victor Young, who is an instrumental composer, Hollywood composer, for a film called China Gate uh-huh. from 1957, directed by Samuel Fuller. It's a big Hollywood kind of theme tune song. And I think it makes that vocal make a lot more sense, right. that China gate. It is, you know, kind of a pastiche. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a pastiche of like a, like you can imagine, oh my God, who's that kind of cowboy guy? Something, yeah, it is so pastiche
didn't realize. Mm. It's set in Indochina, mm-hmm. and it's about a couple of uh, Korean veterans who are mercenary soldiers in China. Oh they have uh, partners from Korea, I think, and they have this conundrum of you know, traveling back to America with their partners, whether or not they'll be Allowed accepted in. into mm. American society. And they're actually resistant to going back and yeah. the, the, the racial tensions around <sighs> these veterans and the, the, the wife actually dies. But this, uh, this veteran does take their, their son back to um, America. That's so classic, that isn't it? Mm. The woman has to, like, the woman has to kind of die, right? It's often the way. There, there's kind of a positive in the fact that, you know, the soldier confronts it and goes back. So maybe that's something that Sun Ra and the musicians, yeah. they felt that this was a worthy... Piece to be involved um, in, yeah. I'm going to watch that. Um, well, maybe maybe I'll dream of watching it. <laughs> yeah, Sunrise music is very um, cinematic in itself. Cause he's always conjuring these sci-fi yeah. environments yeah. or titles to them that are very evocative. We had a tapestry from an asteroid on another instalment of Apocalypse Bunker Discs. And seeing the orchestra, I mean, they really do manifest joy. And they have fantastic mm. outfits. Almost like a religion. He, he sort of extends out of his himself in that yeah. his band continues yeah. after him. Yeah. He kind of embodies, like Meredith Monk in a way, this philosophy of music, which has extended beyond his death. Yeah, it just travels you know. now. I mean, they just travel mm. all the time, huh? They just, they tour. It's like even when he was alive, it wasn't just him. It was more like the a other family. musicians yeah. bought into that and they were as much Sun Ra as he was in a way so yes I imagine that's a nice one to sort of have a bubble bath to to um, <laughs> yeah kind of day- yeah, daydream to yeah. the sparkling gates that you can yeah. picture mm. you know, your next choice is far more down to earth grittier but also quite metallic the uh, the bow gamelan ensemble yeah specifically looking at their concrete barges piece. i like this as a as a reminder 
playing with your environment, how it was a game, it could be a game, right? It's very local to where I was before. There's a lot of joy there. There's a silliness. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll forget what day-to-day noisy sound was like. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good, playful way to bring, like, a day-to-day down here, but that you could really play with the day-to-day. Watching the films of the, of the things that they did, you know, an instant yes, they were getting, like, yes, from, like, my whole body, I think. Like, enthusiastic, this is brilliant. They're also very fun people to have down there, even if they're gritty. Like, gritty's fun, right? Yes, I mean, it is it's cacophonous, the pain of a traffic jam and city industry, or it can be, as you say, a kind of joyful honkings <laughs> and um, something quite entertaining about it. To give their background, the Beau Gamelan Ensemble, developing out of East London and the uh, palimpsest of different time periods that you still had evident there getting into the 80s and 90s which they adapting for musical purpose so they're founded in 1987 the trio of richard wilson pat donnell and anne bean disbanding in 1990 and uh, this particular piece they're performing on these world war ii concrete barges near greenhive and it goes across 10 hours And during that time, there's a tidal change. So they start off by playing all of these sort of industrial, um, like horns, air sirens, sort of playing the barge itself with sticks. And as the tide changes, their kind of sonic capabilities develop into these um, more kind of percussive sounds. And they they get these kind of warbling sounds by filling containers and using the water that's coming in as well. It's really willful, right? They're just like, well, whatever's gonna come into my hand, I can use it. as you say like time based like it has to change um, mm-hmm. because of the nature of their environment is changing all the time around them and they're committing to it you know making the most of it when the change is coming they're ready they're part of it they're part of the change actually they're moving with the change so it's, they're not kind of ever out of their depth because they're playing becoming one with the tide yeah grey murky it's raining <laughs> at some point and they're wearing these kind of yellow plastic hoods and yeah. things and wading outfits I mean, wouldn't you so in love the water. To do, wouldn't you so love to be there? When you look at the Thames with the kind of plague-sodden, dirty water, but then when you actually get in it and embrace this kind of thing, like walking in the rain and accepting the rain, it can be yeah. quite yeah, liberating, healthy thing to do. And it's overlooked as well, right? Oh, absolutely. They're in the background of the landscape, these concrete barges, when, of course, they have this uh, real gravitas to barges themselves they actually use as a, a drum and of course they are the Bo Gamelan 
ensemble. So this kind of Indonesian percussive music, transplanting it to the east of London. Something quite funny about, you know, again, the exotic and the what we see as being the very unexotic. And yet you could close your eyes on some of those things and you could be. It does sound like gamelan music. Rich is, I mean, obviously he's a fantastically skilled drummer. You know, they have that ability. I mean, there's one little clip where they're they're playing the opening holes and the vents in the barge and they're getting these different um, timbres and tones as though he's playing a kettle drum in an orchestra. Everywhere they turn around, they're seeing new opportunities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose uh, the bunker itself can be an instrument. Why to bring that down here mm. is to know that it's an um, approach to your environment, right? And also, I guess, another conundrum with the lack of day and night in the bunker, with artificial lights, you can get a, like a circadian cycle going just yeah. to keep you healthy, but still, you know, not having these tides, if you like, yeah. within the bunker can be quite challenging. So I guess to have that as well as a reminder yeah. Yeah. that we're we all on these cycles. And are people finding their cycles are shifting? That's why we do have these circadian uh, lighting systems yeah. and things like this. We want to maintain a sense of earth within the bunkers. We don't really want people to evolve too much away from where we came from. Right. Because, you know, ultimately we want to recolonize right. the above ground. We don't want to evolve into these come uh, out, come out, you know, borrower-like <laughs> figures. <laughs> yes. And as you know, this is the early stage. We're hoping to connect the other bunkers, ultimately. But at the moment, our bandwidth is tied up in battling these nuclear storms. Yeah, 5G, right? Holograms. Uh, probably we need 9G until we can <laughs> yeah. penetrate all these different... Um, oh, gee whiz, 9G. Or 8, right? Infinity. Infinity Broadband. They, they brought that out a bit too early, <laughs> we've come to realise now, <laughs> as a marketing idea. So very much seen as well as uh, being a part of Luigi Russolo and the futurists and embracing industrial instruments. And as the futurists were using the brand spanking new the gamelan ensemble they were almost using the ruins of these things which were exactly seen as being so obsolete but enormous like you can't get rid of them like what well of course bunkers themselves uh, the idea kind of <laughs> came out of the second world war and the cold war and kind of the dark side of futurism as well. yeah played actually a gig with actual Stephen Hannah and then also Richard at this um, gallery space and he did 
give me a lovely smile when he realised I was going to play by um, swinging around a, a lump hammer on a on a bit of string. <laughs> and I, I, I knew that he approved. It was good. I didn't break anything. So uh, Julius Eastman. Oh, yes. Love it. And his gay gorilla from about 1980. Mm. He composed that. When I saw it performed, the two grand pianos were like pushed up against each other. So they were kind of in an embrace sort of like a martial arts or something like that. Like there's so much strength and precision and duality of the two pianos getting there together. And yeah, he also was a very political figure because he was presenting himself openly twice as this other, you know, um, a black gay man in America at that time. Just saying it and just like living it and being it and presenting this like remarkable work. Gay Gorilla is influenced by minimalist music, the yeah. way that it's structured. But it, apparently the basis of it is a Martin Luther hymn, Mighty Fortress in Our God. It takes this hymn and adapts it into his style, put it Ooh. organic music. And it's characterized by a quote, a gradual accrual and accumulation, often followed by gradual disintegration. So again, this idea of Decreation. Yeah. He'd take the original theme and then he would always try and keep it in the following movements, the same idea, build it up and destroy it. My personal experience of it is very much like a mirror, in that because you have the four pianos or two pianos in some recordings, you have all these overlaying chords yeah. and you can kind of hear what you want to. It's inviting you to carve your own progressions through yeah. the chords because there are multiple voicings which you can pick out in the music so it is that's nice isn't it because it's like you're part of a movement but you are a voice inviting you to be more involved in what he's saying because you're interpreting it in your own way When asked about the song title, 
He said, uh, without blood, there is no cause. I use gay gorilla in hopes that I might be one if called up to be one. Wow, yeah. Obviously receiving a lot of prejudice and he was taking on these these terms, trying to turn them on their head and use them as a, a kind of weapon against these people that yeah. were siding him. And um, he speaks about trying to bridge the gap between uptown and downtown New York, bringing Martin Luther into this context. Yeah. I think it's always going to be somehow so radically new, so fresh, so alive. It's the opposite to Eliane Radi, yeah. who is, you know, very calm, composes with her cat, yeah. and on this, uh, yeah, the very stripped-down synth. Whereas his music is very—it's rhapsodic and it's, it's incredibly emotionally weighted. I feel like it is certainly the one which maybe not every day yeah. you'll be willing to go on this journey. Yeah, it's more driven, right? And it's like, I think mm. there's more edge there for you to get. But um, as I was shuffling a lot and I was sort of thinking I could have some sort of like something really softy pop, like very gentle. But I kind of wanted this new peak. Like if, if, if I'm in a mountain that's becoming a cup, I kind of need to be able to peer over the edge sometimes. climbing the mountain yeah, 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 and then jumping off the top and saying if I have to then I will for what I believe in yeah, yeah, yeah. it was really hard to choose but he was always going to be in there I guess everyone found it hard to choose right see I would hate to do this <laughs> um, I'm very lucky to be working in the on the other side So I guess somebody who's 
equally as uh, principled as a writer you've chosen for your ebook of choice. I mean, I know that um, ebooks aren't as large, but we give you a very high definition kind of version, a full sparkling PDF. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you've you. chosen. Uh, you're, you're welcome. There's a lot of scanning we yeah. do up in the control. And uh, this is uh, Maya Deren, a divine horseman, the living gods of Haiti, yeah. published around 1953, written by uh, Maya Deren, who's really a visionary of several art forms. She's most well known as filmmaker and her very groundbreaking editing styles on films such as Meshes of the Afternoon or um, Ritual in Transfigured Time. But she also um, invested a lot of her work in writing and especially on ethnography and the voodoo. It's a religion of Haiti. There is a Creole expression to walk together. Where life is hard, people depend upon and help each other. Haiti amalgamated different tribes in a common religion known as voodoo. In Haiti, a divine spirit is called a loa. Legba is a loa who is the link between the visible mortal world and the invisible immortal realms. He is the means and avenue between them the vertical axis of the universe. I knew of her work first through her film. A dear friend of mine lent me that book. Gave me a really great understanding of how we as all cultures, I think, construct our myths and narratives and they're always piggybacking on something that went before that's more suitable to the time. And I thought, what was amazing about that work is that it would give me the tools to make up what I needed for the bunker. So I could create my very own host of gods and goddesses that was going to be suitable to this moment in time. Because Mae is recounting her first-hand experience of living in Haiti and experiencing the rituals and learning about the gods and goddesses at first hand. And going through those rituals she does become a vehicle for a goddess embodies a goddess is overtaken within the rituals because it's a first-hand account of ritual magic for me that would be a very welcome tool as someone that appreciates the ability to leave their body and like travel a little bit or be a vehicle for other beings to travel through. When we were talking about Elia Radik's sound, there's so many things that have been so elemental that the human form is no longer within the bunker, at least, or within my mind. It's no longer top of any tree, right? We've been leveled, we've been brought down a peg or two, <laughs> underground even, you know, relearning and a change of perspective and giving away and traveling in various forms and re a grounding and a rewriting, a, a re manifestation of mythological figures is something that I can spend 
quite some time getting into whilst I'm down here, scratching on the walls and doing whatever. Because Voodoo was such a new religion, it shows mm. you how all religion is formed. A case study yeah. of life in practice. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Gede, the god of life and death. That eternal figure in black, posted at the timeless crossroads at which all men and even the sun one day arrive. The cross upon a tomb is his symbol. He is keeper of the cemetery, the guardian of the history and heritage of the race. The future stems from the past, so life and death become one and the same. The Catholic litanies called Action de Grâce precede a voodoo ceremony. Libations are poured as a mark of respect, a first offering. It is a gesture of the hand inviting the gods. And it's really interesting how the university she studied literature, then of course she's an expert in film and choreography and dance. Yeah. And having that perspective as opposed to a study-focused approach yeah. going on the field, observing, filming, joining these people in their rituals and trying to um, experience what they're experiencing as well. It's quite a different approach that you'd have with the scientists who go out and observe things. Yeah. It's more like she's performing as one of them. Yeah. And because of that, you're really getting below the surface. One of the things she shows and she photographs too are that when they're being possessed, rather than dancing and a noticeable physical change, quite often they'll just be sitting there quite sedately yeah. while mentally they have gone somewhere else, having rituals, but body isn't really a part of it for these people. Yeah. There is a film as well, which was completed after her death by one of her um, ex-husbands. And um, you can see that the editing style, the kind of slow motion framing and uh, editing of these rituals is very similar to some of her films as well. It's interesting that you can see her lens, if you like. Her eye, still. yeah. The slow capturing of these rituals unfolding really allow you to sink into the sensual nature of them. Sight is part of it, but it's smell, it's beat, it's rhythm, it's movement. It's all those things, and the slowness of the camera allows those other things to kind of seep into your awareness. You trick yeah. the eye a little bit into being a bit sleepy, and then the other things can kind of prick up. And maybe it's also affecting, mimicking that sleepy state that might overtake a body within this, you know, this kind of eye as the mind. It's like watching something in a dream, right? She mainly uses it on a section on violence. For those quite fast and ritualistic and dance-based performances yeah. that they were giving, that she decided to slow those down yeah. to try and give more of a insight into that. Yeah, like watching a rave really slow. Something different is going to happen to you, right?
um, Maya. It was actually given to her. It's like a nickname. The Mayan god, the kind of mother of all the other gods as well. I guess other people did see her as being just ahead of her time and wanting to do everything herself as well. So even with those early films, she was very resourceful at getting people to fund them and she would direct them, edit them, dance in them, perform in them. And the same with the field study. She was performing with these people, photographing. There's also a record they made of the um, performances. It's on um, Electra Records, Uh Jack Holzman's label, which went on to be, you know, The Doors and Love and Bands like this. Started out as a folk record label and it's one of their first... Right. It's called uh, Voices of Haiti. And the microphone was actually tied to the maypole, which they would dance around for a lot of these uh, performances. Right. Ooh. And they had a maypole. That's interesting, right? Yeah, it's like a tree of life kind of thing. Mm -hmm. thing as well, no? Just like that vertical line. Yeah, going up. Through the center post, the potomiton, the gods enter. At its base, the Bevers are drawn. Around the center post, all ritual movements and dance revolve. It's so nice how how she really kind of allows every god and goddess each kind of aspect of them lots of space there's no mm-hmm. ownership it's not like this bit is right and this bit's wrong it's just like this and this enthusiasm intrigue surprise like acknowledgement and then you can see how that translates onto other things how things are always in flux and how things are always sort of manifest for the moment that they're needed in Yes, they're like tools. Yeah, it's a tool. Which god do you think would, would be most useful in your, <laughs> uh, your present scenario? Oh, goodness. I would say that there's probably going to be some kind of stone entities that are probably going to help me. But I'm not sure what their names are. I'd rather a goddess, though. Come on, give us a goddess. Yeah, I suppose as time goes on, the bunker will suggest its own That voice um, is going to keep talking to me. I know it is. I mean, maybe the the above world will become a god in itself. It will become abstracted into this, um, yeah, being. Uh, Just just speak a bit about how um, the sounds that they make are like symbols, which they kind of activate to achieve their contact with the divine powers as well. Well, that's nice. There's so many things within shamanic work Mm -hmm. as well, which is all about these very simple vibratory tones a simple drum which kind of activates and then allows you to access that portal or those sort of um, realms dolmens earlier there's this feeling of worldwide there being these things which are common to humanity as well he's sort of tapping into as a child she was displaced as well family were fleeing from russia and as a student she was like a part of some 
by Trotskyite um, political organizations as right. well before becoming an artist. So like maybe this was at the heart of her endeavors in Haiti to some extent. At the end of the book where she's charting this whole history and she's explaining how the culture stitches together new religious figures. They've all got characteristics from the different religions that were at play, you know, so they've created this whole new thing out of all of them. It's like a, it's a big jigsaw. How all religions are building themselves up off the back of what has gone before. Then at the very end of the story, she has the experience of being embodied by one of the goddesses. Very intense. Her sense of self is completely overtaken by this goddess figure beautiful and incredible and then I think also I was just really imagining this space within the bunker as something that this would be potential for people and probably would be happening there is that people would be finding ways to create new meaning for themselves if they were staying down there for a long time creating ways to have rituals and to have out-of-body experiences all the fantasies of the people can come to life in this period of joyous festivities and through all this, the spirit of life, Papagede, reigns supreme. You've kind of covered the whole world, I think, across your choices. <laughs> I didn't really realize until afterwards, I think until speaking maybe today, that America is very strong. I guess the bow, you've got either hyper-local. You've got the hyper-local. Or, um, bit of Frenchiness, yeah, a bit of Frenchiness, which yeah, is good. <laughs> kind of New York as a port of the world, maybe. Yeah, and I did live in New York for a good few months, and it was like a really fun time. I mean, another person who was displaced was your artist of choice, Anna Mendieta. Yes, and she was and constantly uh, reaching back into this shadow figure of self. Unfortunately, there are very few sound documents of Anna Magneta's work. Her Silhouette series dates from 1973 to 78, and is documented mainly by photographs and some Super 8 film footage of these near-identical outlines of a female goddess impressed in various terrains, stark lime outlines in mud, sometimes trenches dug in the silhouette form bursting into flames, or sand trenches filled with a blood-red pigment. I shall, however, produce an auditory silhouette of kind. The online platform PixelSynth scans images as though a score and produces music by translating colour and lightness to musical tones. This is its take on a white outline of the figure on dark earth. From left to right, you can hear the tones starting centrally at the left arm, before rising and falling simultaneously towards the head and feet, re-meeting, then, the dark silence of the earth. She was born to some uh, quite established parents in, in Cuba, related with the Catholic missionaries, mm. and there was this Operation Peter Pan, as part of this Catholic organization, 14,000 Cuban children, often related to these more affluent figures, were sent to the U.S., exiled to be schooled in the U.S., away yeah. from communist Cuba. 
and um, Anna Mendieta was one of these children, and she with her sister, yeah. Yes, with her sister, and she ended up uh, studying in the U.S. and she always felt like she'd been sort of torn out of her home country, and part of her identity had been um, ripped away from her in a way. So you can view these these silhouettes and all of her artworks. They all seem to be grappling with this schism of identity and this feeling of um, displacement that she has sort of central to her, her being, being sort of cast from the, the womb and stuff like this. Yeah. She's really credited as synthesizing two art forms in land art and body art. So she was installing her works in the landscape and at the same time using her body and to do so or using the form of her body in the work she was doing. Forever mother, forever anima, Gaia, whatever. The body as an element. She was so focused. She just struck her board and kept working through it, working through it, working through it. They're timeless as well. Like, I think you can come across those images and understand them and be moved by them, but understand them as mysterious things in a way that an artwork can speak to and be kind of overwhelming, but also personally comforting the unknown and the known the uncanny thing about them right all in one go they are symbols the silhouettes in a way of what it is to be a woman in one way they're very simple and at the other time they're very ambiguous yeah. and they have a big weight to them and the kind of red blood she'll use or the fire or the scorched earth or the kind of raised arms and like an angel that's like crashed into the earth or something like this yeah that's a nice so way of thinking it's like them. fallen from a height and also it's like a trace it's a trace of a human it's almost like a crime scene like tracing yeah, around the body yeah 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 it's like it's gone now like sort of there was something mm-hmm. like we have this thing with being human that we can't really get our head around the fact that things end and change some ways we're not above the other things I mean, I know that you're working for the Intergalactic Institute of Vladidar. Control. Which is maybe not accepting of these things like changing and ending either. But mm. I do believe in science, obviously, and I think that science is great. But when it wants to eradicate all illness and death, you sort of think, but surely values are things that need to happen. Which sounds yes, like a bad thing it. to say, because people never want those things to happen. Because good things and bad things have to happen together so you can appreciate both of them otherwise you have a a brave new world situation no exactly if you only Mm. get candy you're not going to be a happy person right it's just going to be weird no teeth to ache and um Mm -hmm. probably a plethora of other illnesses and bad things angels crashing into the earth and getting a bit messed up on the way is probably a good thing In this rendering, you can hear the bright swelling of smoke from the dark body trench in the center of the image. She's known to have been very interested in uh, Santeria, which is a a sort of syncretism of Roman Catholic religion and the Yoruba religion of West Africa, which uh, developed in Cuba as well. 
So a little bit like with the um, the voodoo religion. She did that piece with the chicken where she um, basically held the chicken up and she cut the chicken's throat. And she also did a really nice piece with the feathers where she just like was the whole body feathered. Again, it's very mythological, but she's mm. right there in the center of it all. The female silhouette which she uses is almost like it's a specific woman, it's herself, and at the same time it is this universal, yes. mythical figure Cosmic as well. Cosmic other woman, yeah, 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 mm. yeah, yeah. And I love being in the landscape. When I was in Iceland, for instance, I was sort of traveling around there, and they really are very aware and very respectful of the spirits that they see and perceive within their own landscape. And within, like, mm -hmm. say, the ice caves, there are these formations that form every year in the winter. And they are seen as, like, the same spirits returning year after year to the place because they come back in the same shape, the same space, and the same things. And within the rocks, there are spirits. But, you know, you just sort of feel that that mm. understanding of nature's own agency that's beyond your, you know, you're not, you're a ripple on the surface of the water in comparison to this stone or the shift, um, the shift of your relevance to like the grander scheme of things is um, kind of refreshing. She said that all of her artworks were a her way of dealing with the trauma of being ripped away from her culture. It's her way of reconciling Reaching herself. Back. Reaching back yeah, into that world, right? With the earth as well to some yeah. extent, or to feel more of a connection to get over that feeling of alienation that she had. She was alienated. She was brought from one culture as a child into another one and then you're kind of enforced into new cultural norms that have got nothing to mm -hmm. do with you and will never accept your version of you expected to present this other grateful version of you, right? There's one incident which she was particularly responded to quite uh, strongly. There was a rape at the University of Iowa oh, yeah. where um, a woman called uh, Sarah Ann Otten was killed as well. And um, a few of her pieces, they directly um, respond to this. So That was amazing. When she was basically pouring blood on the street, right? Mm. Kind of, in a way. Yes. She wasn't as shy as being as violent as the violence that she saw around her, I guess, but in an aesthetic way, to make a gesture, to make a point, to make a, to make a statement, be vocal. Mm -hmm. A productive shock to yeah. generate more debate and exposure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Visually, even, they kind of burn in your retina as well, don't they? There's pain and renewal there, there's joy there, you know, there's like, there's dance there, there's a life force there, even without a body. Like there's flowers mm -hmm. blossoming, even with the fire it's blossoming into these sparks and flames and things like that. In this sound image, you can hear white flowers blooming from a naked female form, lying in a stone ruin-lined trench in the bright sunlight. Woof. So woofy that one, wasn't it? It was a very dog-like woof. Good point. Yeah, that was an archetypal <laughs> woof.
Our star was dying. It was like an ice age, but much more severe. We had to move, we had to leave. Whole armadas of spaceships set out. They all dispersed into the universe. I don't know where they are. I guess they're all lost. A few made it to your planet, planet Earth. The tone of your next choice is an equally heavy subject matter, which was very close to home, this one you've got here. And yet the tone of it is actually almost quite humorous. It's uh, what the director, Werner Herzog, of this particular film described as a pure science fiction fantasy. It's called The Wild Blue Yonder, uh, from 2005. And essentially, the, uh, the protagonist is an extraterrestrial on Earth, played by Brad Dourif, who um, is explaining how he ended up as a refugee from Andromeda on planet Earth and essentially the Earth is making all the mistakes which he had seen unfolding back on his home planet. Almost no one in this film, right? There's, there's almost no characters no. in the film. Um, the story is so funny and you kind of think like, ah, it's a happy ending without any people in it. It's, it's quite good. The, the, the ways of imagining space. I love space being under the Arctic is so otherworldly. What makes my planet so different and beautiful is the sky there. The sky is frozen. Just thinking about it makes me homesick. And how there are so many other worlds, even on our own world, that we've had this colonial obsession with space when there's so much wonder and magic and mystery right there or here in front of us. This is the fallout, some alien that's also come from a similar scenario to us, but a little bit more in the future. Lost and bewildered in a car park of a shopping mall. Shopping mall? I could have told them. We had a similar plan, but you saw it didn't work. Where are the shoppers, if I may ask? Where are they? Makes me so sad to think of all that merchandise sitting there unsold. The people in space still taking what they're doing seriously, and then the actual space that's left on Earth. His central concern is that it left this planet in Andromeda because they were having a big catastrophe, so they had to escape. And then, of course, the people on Earth are heading in a similar trajectory, and the closest planet is his. And yet he knows that it's a, a no-better situation, kind of. There is no sense of being close to anything. So you're truly an island. You begin to accept a different life. I think he's using lots of found footage from um, astronauts in space. And he interviews a lot of scientists. <laughs> yeah. But he gets them to make up all of these uh, concepts. There's one, uh, chaos travel. He gets the scientists to explain this idea where they go through these chaos tunnels, which they've discovered. Uh, they have a remodeling of the solar system <laughs> of all of these tubes <laughs> sort of wrapping yeah. around. And now 500 years later, um, our, our picture of the solar system is, is, is slightly different. And I'm using an image uh, from the Chartres Cathedral's floor of, and actually has the even more antiquity origin of um, the labyrinth, which shows that the whole solar system is really integrated. 
And this integration, um, even though in this picture, of course, is, is very nice and even, but actually these are generated by chaotic orbits. And it's what I call a chaotic transport that uh, was first really uh, uh, discovered mathematically by Poincaré. So Strange, because it's in the style of a 90s sort of History Channel documentary. Semi-believable. Yeah. You could believe that people back yeah, then semi. would present this kind of stuff as real and have relief in it. They have like a, an earnestness to them, which I guess spacemen must need. They need to be earnest. Uh, the soundtrack to the film as well is specially scored, and most of the film is soundtracked yeah. with Re Requiem for a Dying yeah. Planet, which was composed by the cellist Ernest Reiger. And it features a Senegalese singer called Mola Silla, who's the lead voice, um, backed by a Sardinian vocal choir called Washes de Sardinia. Uh, it's really a synthesis of different musical cultures. It's a bit like the Golden Voyager disc, which was sent into outer space with representative music from all over the world. So it's an attempt at a kind of world music style. And then I just love the ending because you just get this glorious earth and you just think, well, that would be a great thing to look on from down here, just that celebration at the end, right? There's so much beauty there. Well, I'm, I'm pro-spoiler, so um, at the end of the film, the humans have pretty much colonised elsewhere and they work on colonies around the solar system and then the earth becomes a sort of natural park or a holiday area. I mean, everybody is left, and it's kind of um, a beautiful thing, the earth without humans. I'm all right with that. I think it's okay. I think it's all right.
kind of a nice way to, to feel like it's hopeful up there. However long the atomic storms rage. I mean, probably they're throwing up all sorts of interesting things. We're very busy analysing all of these emanations that we're seeing up there. This really brings me to the final question. So if you, if you were to have an epitaph for any of the future generations that may uh, find you in the bunker or beings, what would be the one thing you would say to the, to the future? I always sort of thought it'd be quite fun to be like head for hats. Get ahead for hats, like that's fine. Um, but the epitaph for the future can't be like hat based. Um, play but don't litter, huh? Play nice, don't litter. Well, I just really hate litter. I just think, oh, you absolutely suck. I mean, that is a point because I'm sure even if some beings from elsewhere do arrive, they can surely relate to that. Yeah, I think everyone can relate to that. You just like, oh. It's a, a universal concept. I think so. Most other things don't litter. I mean, they dig holes. You can make a mess. Mess is fine. Mess is like creative process. Litter's just rubbish. No space waste. Maybe my perception of time is very human thing, so I can't really see that that polystyrene stuff that people throw down every day has got its life Mm. cycle. It's a thousand years their day one, their birth and conception and voyage into the earth being put into a packet, being used and thrown away by a human was just the very beginning of their long and interesting journey into something that I've got no idea about. You know, we do have uh, waste vehicles which are sucking everything up at the moment. What colour are the nuclear storms? Are they like green and red or purple? They are most colours. Yeah, every colour. Hmm. So it's not something I'd recommend. It's definitely much better down here. Yeah, yeah, out of the way, out of the way, out of the way, out of the way. Is there a piece that you would like to be uh, representative of your work for this uh, transmission? A piece that I made pre-lockdown, pre-bunker, called Raft. I'll set the scene. Girl, beach, villa. Tell me what you know of the scene. Black night day. Highway, chance encounter, knowing small. They used to swim in it, didn't they? Emerging with skin so fresh, alive with the essence of soap and berry and lychee. With bodies whirling around the mine dunes. Returning to the belly of a whale into the dreams. The dreams of flowers crumpled in a hand. The dream of your eyes. The dream of a tear rolling down your face. The dream of walls closing in. The dream of the night sky. The dream of the empty fridge. The dream of hiding. The dream of the landscape waking like a sleeping animal, stretching, and then going back to sleep. The dream of the color blue. The dream of a crow pecking at a heart. 
That was an excerpt from Charlotte Law's film Raft, an ambient meditation on interdependence, love, longing, solitude, and water. Charlotte has also released a new cassette tape titled Ice Since Fire, a precise world of subtle drones and mysterious incident, using prepared guitar and even recordings of the plants in her studio, released by Linear Obsessional and available on Bandcamp. Well, thank you for your auditory voyeurism into this parallel world. I must take leave of you now to process Charlotte's download ration over at Control, but I look forward to talking at you with another Lockaway in the next subcast. Under and out.